All right, so today we're going to be talking about the theory of alienation. Uh, we're going to be going through a couple of different aspects of it. We're going to talk about their implications. Uh, and finally, we're going to focus on the final part, which will be psychology and what it means to alienation. So today it's me, John, and my friend, Andrea. Hello. Leading this podcast, and hopefully in the future, we'll have many more people along to talk about more interesting topics such as these uh, that affect us all. So first off, I want to start with a little introduction to the theory. Now, the theory of alienation is a rather interesting first work of Karl Marx in well, where he basically looked at the reasons why we feel so disconnected from life. If you consider that under the current system, which is capitalism, we basically have to sell our labor to the capitalist in order to feel like, well, not just feel, but in order to survive. Everything we do is basically selling or buying ourselves. What this does is this alienates us from our greater community. So for example, when you're working, do you own the thing you work at the end of the day? Does the graphic designer that worked on this great artwork for this amazing advertisement, do they look at their advertisement and say, well, I made that. It's got my name on it. See, you can see it right there. No, it doesn't. It says Nike on it. Nike takes over everything that we work on. Or can I play devil's of- advocate sure. a bit? So, but what about the pride or the sense of satisfaction that your work could give you? Well, that's exactly what you're told you should have. Why is that? Well, because then you'll be willing to do it. That's the thing, is that you're willing to do it because they tell you. They've taken away your true ownership over your production. And they've told you, hey, what about just the pride of doing your work? So why would they do that? Well, <laughs> why would they do that? Because that's how they convince you to do things for them for free. Could you elaborate on that? <laughs> okay. I'm not sure I understand. Well, let's take a step back first, because first we have to understand that we have a certain relationship to our employers, to the people that pay us for our labor, that rent our labor, that not rent our labor, that own our labor, that own our production. But renting labor is what it says in the contract, right? Yeah. My contract says that. Yeah. My work contract. Yeah. But then they own your product. Absolutely. You know, I write texts and speeches Mm. and my name never goes on it, for example. Exactly. So the thing is that they've convinced us that this is normal. And so this being convinced that this is normal means that we are willing to sell our labor but the thing is that like you're saying right now what about what they tell us they tell us oh well you should just be happy to be able to produce and to be honest you should be but we live in a world where that's conditional to survival right so we aren't able to survive unless we're doing a lot of work and they get to decide how much our labor is worth We don't get to decide how much our labor is worth. So they say, we will rent your labor at this set price. You can negotiate a little bit, but at some point they will say no. And why will they say no? Because they can't make profit off of you. So would you say that this is a bit like 
it becomes an obligation and then it strips the joy out of making that production or is it larger than that well it is it is that and like you say it is larger than that because it has further implications so if we start out first by remembering first of all in the microcosm of the workspace that your boss can tell you well you should just enjoy what you're doing and enjoy doing it for a wage but they don't tell you that the idea of wages is also a problem because the existence of money also normalizes the fact that we have to pay to be alive we are the only animal that has to pay to be alive i saw a funny meme the other day of a, a man uh, talking to an ape and he says oh you apes are so stupid and the ape turns around and says you're the only animal that has to pay to be alive so we have to earn this money from our bosses who get to decide how much money we earn and this means that we have no autonomy over how we live we are basically under this kind of hostage situation which is actually if you think about wages if you think about money is an incredibly violent way of existing well what does this do for us well we've thought about this for their entire lives as normal you know receiving a wage working hard is normal but actually like i'm telling you right now it's actually incredibly violent and has deep effects on us the thing is that if you are under duress like if i don't work i will starve i will lose my home i will be kicked out onto the street and when i'm out on the street the police will deal with me as we see all the time basically the concept is that if you do not agree to the social contract of capitalism you will be relegated to either being lazy to being uh, you will further from there be abused physically or verbally for not performing your end of the capitalist contract so work becomes this moral value be it in right. the US or in Europe yeah absolutely and of course all over the capitalist world right yes i mean we understand the US American and European context best right. because that's where we're from but obviously it's not limited to these areas no no exactly i spent time in japan and i spend time still with my uh, korean clients who overwork themselves you know 10 to 12 hours a day just to meet the expectations of their economic society their economic culture so the other thing is that it also means that everything we do we don't realize it but we're not really doing it for ourselves so we're alienated at work but we're also alienated from ourselves if i can't do anything if or rather if every moment in my day is something that i could be selling to the capitalist and if i don't do that i don't make enough to survive then I have to constantly be considering new ways to sell myself. So what do you make of the um, fragmentation of the day into three parts basically like eight hours at work, eight right. hours for yourself and eight hours to sleep. So the capitalist system is based off the idea that this is enough to give you a work life balance. Well that, that's actually really interesting because It comes out of several places. The the first thing was that unions were fighting against the old system 
of a harsher capitalism, which would have like 10 hour days or 12 hour days or 16 hour days. And they said, we should have these unions sat down and said, no, we should have eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep and eight hours for what you may. That's the old English. And there was also this funny, these experiments that Ford did, uh, Henry Ford, that found that if he worked his workers more than eight hours, that they would make mistakes on his cars and that would lower his profits. So they capitulated or rather agreed to the unions and said, okay, that's fine. You'll work eight hours a day. It's actually more profitable for me. Yeah. So he did it for himself he rather did, than exa- for, the, exactly. for the workers. Exactly. So now we think of this as normalized, uh, like the eight-hour day. And we also think of it as being something that unions fought for. Therefore, it should be good enough. But the reality is that it doesn't matter how many hours we work. What matters is what the work does for us. Does it make us happy? I'm not sure. What about purpose? Well, whose purpose are we working for? Um, Am I working for my boss's dream or am I working for my dream? What if you work for a cause? Well, you can get enormous amounts of uh, validation from working for a cause. But at the end of the day, you are not going to be able to really reap any emotional reward from that i mean you you will of course you know if you if you work for a cause you can this is a really difficult question because there are meaningful causes and there are people that believe that their causes are meaningful and of course you could live your entire life working for this cause and feel incredible reward from it but oftentimes for example with charities those causes serve to maintain geopolitical order, for example, where you, if you found out about this, that would be incredibly damaging to that self-worth, mm-hmm. right? So you find out that, you know, you're, you're providing food to Africa, but that uh, the U.S. is using that money to basically elect a certain political leader that will maintain capitalism in the area. You might not feel so good about the work you're doing if you knew that. So I get the feeling this is something that is not being talked about and that is hidden. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it, yeah, I can understand. Like there's the hidden aspect in that we have a certain, what they call in America is ABC, anything but communism. Uh, politics, basically, like because we don't talk about anything left from liberalism, we can't imagine anything left of liberalism, but also we can't see what progress really is because we've cut it out from our vernacular right so when we think about good things we think about being you know like a good liberal but actually being a liberal is the limit of the acceptable form of progress which means still capitalist which means you are still alienated right so I just want to get back a little bit to like the alienation of the self. So I gave this example to one of my clients recently. You know, if you're reading a book, are you reading a book for yourself? Are you reading a book to improve yourself? Well, if you're reading a book to improve yourself, that's quite interesting. Are you really improving yourself or are you improving your saleability on the capitalist market? It depends. It depends. I would say. If you're reading a book just for a moment 
to get back the time in your day that you feel you're tired, you just want to relax. Are you reading that book because you are, that's the thing is that you are doing this under duress. You're exhausted, right? Yeah, well, I guess it depends if you read a book for entertainment or if you read it to well enhance your market value, your skills, or if you read it to learn. In all of these cases, for example, if you want to read a book for entertainment or watch a movie for entertainment, there is the driver of escapism, wanting to escape from the constant grind of work that makes you want to read this book. Right. So what we need to do is rather consider, just as a thought experiment, a system where we don't have the stress of the world on us. Now, let's really, really think about this, where we're not in the, under any duress, any duress, for example, like capitalism. Rather, we are, you know, literally have nothing to do. So we read a book. Mm, sounds nice. That sounds nice, right? In that case, that's a completely different situation. If we right now have the privilege of being able to read a book out of pure boredom, then we might be in a certain category of privilege uh, to be able to do so. But that is also a very capitalist idea that doing nothing means boredom, means lazy. Oh, yeah. Well, the laziness is very, very problematic. Like there's no such thing. And then doing nothing can be good for you. It's not inherently bad to do nothing. But that under a different system, we would have a passion to want to do something. Whereas now we have an exhaustion that makes us not want to do something. And that is why we turn to escapism, right? Because the day, the work day also doesn't end with the eight hours we spend. Especially nowadays. Yeah. The work day goes on under the form of free labor that you do at home. Absolutely. So at the moment, of course, especially more and more as our jobs ask us less of physical labor. Well, of course, there are a considerable amount that are using physical labor, but there are more and more that are asking for this mental labor. And that mental labor is not so easy to just put down at uh, five or six o'clock. They ask us to continue thinking about the projects that we're working on. And we will often be thinking about them until 2 or 3 a.m. or all night. Yeah, and also while doing the dishes, while doing the laundry, or while taking care of the kids, whatever. Exactly. So there's not, even if we had that eight-hour you know, system, eight hours of this, eight hours of that, and eight hours of whatever, even if we had those clear-cut lines, the, the new type of labor that we're doing actually crosses those borders into being a 24-hour-a-day job. And the other thing is that back in the day, companies used to promise you this thing called a career. And that by working hard, that that would, or rather a career would incentivize you to work hard. The new idea now is for, since 2008, is what's called the gig economy, where Mm -hmm. they have kind of said, they've pitted you all against each other and taken away all of the benefits they used to give you with the career, with the healthcare on the side, with all of this, these extra perks to make you work harder. Instead, now they give you what they call like these kind of libertarian freedoms. You get to choose your own hours. But in reality, they've taken away all of your safety nets and 
are really putting you in a dangerous position where if you don't work harder for them, they'll just get rid of you mm -hmm. because they have no legal obligation to you. So we are even uh, further alienated into working even harder for our bosses, for our capitalists in those ways. So uh, that, that talks about the, the work alienation, but I keep, I keep wanting to get back to the self-alienation is that at the end of the day, oh, well, let's, let's use the example of a hobby, you know? Are you doing your hobby because you want to do your hobby, because you're passionate about it? What hobby are we talking well, about? Could be what hobby. is a hobby? Something that you do that, for example, doesn't, well, actually, a lot of times people say, for example, oh, I've got a side business as a hobby. Everything kind of goes back to being productive. That's what I wanted to get at because like, you know, I enjoy doing yoga, but then yoga becomes like this kind of obligation for me because, uh, well, we're not getting any younger and we build up muscle tension and I need to do it to stay in a good enough shape to be productive. And then the reason why I'm so tense is because I have a desk job and I spend too much time sitting. And then there's also yeah. the stress and anxiety. There's many factors that cause for me to have to do that kind of exercise and while I enjoy yoga as maybe one of my favorite uh, types of exercise there's still this obligation to get a workout in because yeah. it's what you're supposed to do also for your work-life balance so right. and then if when I come home after work I'm very often even too tired to do this mm. because then again there's also the domestic labor absolutely that one needs to do and uh, well I don't have kids huh? but, so it's even not that bad I would say but still I mean the cleaning needs to be done so I don't have the energy for a hobby right so and then if I want to force myself or if I gotta force myself to do that to kind of comply with the expectation that I have to have something outside of work and the same goes for socializing, then it becomes another obligation. Absolutely. So, and, and that, that, that's a very good point. So first of all, capitalism has normalized the fact that what we want to do in our free time or what we want to do, not just in our free time, because we don't have free time, we have our lives, okay? And capitalism has convinced us to cut it up into little pieces there's work time and there's free time but no that's not the fact that's not a fact your daily tasks that you have to do for yourself are more important than what you're doing for your capitalist boss that you shouldn't feel tired when you're doing your housework or whatever it is that you need to do the time you spend living should be what's important, not the time you spend working. Yeah, but living is something that you do on the side. Exactly. At the moment, we live in a system where living is something you do on the side. And that's what alienation is. Alienation is the fact that you aren't able to live. Living is something you do on the side. And even when you do it on the side, you are not able to do it because it's under duress. Right. So... That affects you at work. It affects you in your day-to-day -day life. For example, well, you know, I'd like to do the laundry today, but also enjoy my life. But that's not possible because you have to spend eight hours at work. You have to spend the next eight hours thinking about it, and you have to barely be able to sleep 
to wake up the next day to do it again. And the, the next thing is that this stress kind of expands outwards and it means that you're also not only alienated from the work that you do, from the ability to decide what work you do, you're not just alienated from yourself, from the things that you want to do for yourself in this wonderful world, that could be <laughs> wonderful rather, but you're also alienated and separated from your entire community because you are so exhausted, you are so stressed, you are burnt out that you don't like the people next to you. you and you're easily able to be convinced that you shouldn't like people that aren't your friends, that aren't your intimate community. Why shouldn't we like them? Why shouldn't we like them? Well, we should. Yeah, but I mean, what? where does it come from, the uh, idea does... that we shouldn't like them? Well, so capitalism does, does these things. For example, it offers us this idea of individualistic freedoms, which are kind of this poison pill. It says, you know, you are more important than everybody else. Everybody else is trying to take away your opportunities for greatness. Your opportunities for greatness are achievable through hard work. Work for us and achieve this greatness. But everybody else along the way is your enemy. Because if you don't take advantage of them, they'll take advantage of you. That sounds pretty narcissistic. And I know we're going to get into psychology psychology later. later, But could we, would you say that we live in a narcissistic society? I think that capitalism encourages and breeds narcissism so is narcissism a product of capitalism or is it a mental well maybe not disorder i think psychology distinguishes between narcissistic personality disorder and Mm. narcissistic traits so is it a psychological issue or is it a capitalist product well i'm I'm not going to be talking Uh, because obviously I'm not a psychologist, but I will say, and it's not, I wouldn't say it's capitalism specific in that answer, because of course, narcissism has existed since, you know, the the name comes from narcissists, right? Mm -hmm. The ancient Greeks. But narcissism or egotism comes out of a time in the last 10,000 to 5,000 or even to the very present, because there are still communities in the world right now that don't believe in individualistic thinking that uh, have more collective thinking this narcissism comes out of a period when we started to objectify others so we started seeing ourselves as human and others as not and of course that's where patriarchy comes from where you create a hierarchy of uh, of gender uh, race comes out of the same you know, race, of course, through many thousands of years, slowly becomes more and more hierarchical, gets applied through institutional racism and during colonialism. And of course, psychology, which we'll get to later, also has an interesting history, which we'll talk about in a bit. But the idea of narcissism comes out of these ideologies of individualism. So which is not necessarily true or can be said to be a monolith of of humans. Humans are not necessarily individualistic. Individualistic is kind of a human creation. 
Uh, so yeah. yeah, it's kind of conforming to mm, normative expectations. Yeah, exactly. Um, the the thing that this makes me think of is, of course, of Darwinism and uh, the survival of the fittest, but also the opposite, which is Kropotkin's theory of mutual aid. There's this idea which kind of came about in the mid to late 1800s of this social Darwinism, which really worked really well with capitalism, that we're inherently selfish creatures and that being selfish is important to the survival of the fittest. Well, that is also where eugenics comes from. Comes from. Well, not only Darwinism. But the social Darwinism, which is kind of this... And the thing is, what what Kropotkin does is he broadens this theory of evolution and he points out that survival of the fittest is not the only way that animals survive, that uh, beings survive. He, He points out that most animals survive through helping each other, even the animals that we wouldn't imagine helping each other. And he points out millions of ways in which human beings have always done the same thing. But he does note that the times when we don't help each other are the times when materials are scarce. Now, the thing is that capitalism creates this scarcity and it controls who's allowed to get that those materials and that those materials are granted for hard labor. So you get money so that you will work hard so that you can get money so that you can get the materials for survival. So there's an artificial scarcity that's been created. And so by creating this artificial scarcity, the theory of survival of the fittest seems to really apply to our lives when we don't consider capitalism as being present. We just think as this is the normal way that life is. Yeah, and then I guess it's also, well, this really relates to the idea that anybody who isn't fit to work is a burden on society so they are taking away something from people who work who are productive and that feeds into that fake scarcity well this idea of scarcity exactly so because we think that well, we always have this thing. Well, who's going to pay for that? You know, like who's going to pay for care for the elderly? Who's going to ta- who's going to pay for health care? You know, and 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 slowly that ideology like permeates even the most uh, social of economies. Uh, you know, here in Europe, for example, we also slowly start to say, oh, well, who's going to pay for that in the UK where the NHS is being gouged? But the reality is that it's not the billionaires. It's us. We are paying to help each other. We are coming together to help each other. Now, you know, like, oh, for example, a disabled person. Oh, well, they're not contributing. It's really, really callous that we only care about the people that are working hard. That we have taken on the ideology of the people that are abusing us to abuse our fellow human that is suffering. So that's the the point of alienation is that we have also alienated ourselves from our local society, from the people that need our help. We have turned around and used the ideology of our oppressors against our own 
kin. Yeah, and that then obviously leads the way to dehumanization and exactly. also eugenics. Exactly. So these concepts allow us to dehumanize our neighbors and dehumanize neighbors by creating in-groups, for example, you know, like race or in-groups like, for example, gender or neurotypicality or, you know, the, we can talk about a million different ones. All of these allow us to divide ourselves from each other and then say that we are more valuable than the others. So that is where all the hate comes from. Well, of course, the hate, this is really difficult. So the idea is that we are under a stressful situation. We are alienated from ourselves. We're alienated from our works and we are alienated from our society. And we have been indoctrinated into accepting our oppressors' ideologies. So this alienation also frustrates us it makes us angry who is the cause of all of our problems and oftentimes you know like this is what drives us towards like these conspiracy theories or these racist ideas yeah because it's easier to blame others than to question the system because right. it's uncomfortable to question the system because we are so trapped in it and oftentimes there are a lot of things that we truly value from the system Right. Like what? Well, you might say our families. <laughs> Not us. <laughs> our families. Well, the thing is that, again, like our family is a group of people that we really care about or we should. Well, that is the discourse. The capitalist yeah. expectation, right? Yeah. But the reality is that our family is a way of placing the responsibility of care on as few people as possible. So instead of having a community of care, we have a family of care. We can't go to our neighbor nowadays, especially I remember in the US, you go to your neighbor, you're likely to get shot, uh, depending on what part of the country you're in. But societies used to share everything with each other. Anthropologists, I think David Graeber pointed this out in an interesting talk I watched recently that really Ancient societies used to share all things. They would, for example, have, you know, two or they would have a barrel of grain allotted for each family. But in reality, if another family needed to borrow from it, it wasn't, it was not only normal to borrow from it, it was an expectation that the family that had the extra food would give it to the people in need. So it's a community of sharing. It's a community of sharing. But instead, under capitalism, they said, well, you need to create these small units where they separated us into these small family groups. And they said, this is the people you can trust and everybody else is against you. So we both read Sophie Lewis's Abolish the Family right. and uh, one of the main points is that the family is a way of shifting responsibility from the state exactly. to the nuclear family so the state doesn't have to provide services now when we think of mutual aid is mutual aid like we both also read the book by dean spade yes on mutual aid and dean spade points at the risk that um, mutual aid might be a way for governments to 
or states to feel exempted from any responsibility in a similar way that they shift responsibility onto families. So mm. is that something like how does that apply to um, mutual aid and community care? Well, that's a okay. So obviously, mutual aid uh, as a concept outside of capitalism can be really, really great, and even inside of capitalism can serve as a form of rebellion against the system. But there is often, and uh, Dean Spade talks about this a lot, the risk of capitalist co-optation. Uh, so that mutual aid, like helping out homeless people by giving them food uh, for free, regardless, without imposing a lot of regulations like charities do, uh, gives food away to anybody for free, because if they need it, then they are deserving of it. But government can often take advantage of this, and or rather the state can take advantage of this. The state can see that our human kindness is something that can be commodified and so we also have to be careful of this or we have to not be careful but we have to be aware of it that we are still under the the capitalist paradigm we're still under this capitalist realism which is constantly looking for ways to take advantage of the work that we do for ourselves and for our community so this this actually comes back to alienation all of the work you do for yourself you're trying to read a book or you're trying to help out your neighbor you're trying to help out your community and that even that is commodified, right? right? So it feels like everything you do is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, in a way. And that can be really frustrating. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, the thing is that we have to be aware of that nuance. It doesn't mean don't help your neighbor, because actually helping your neighbor or helping out unconditionally and pushing for unconditional care for your community, unconditional work for humanity, for everything around you, for everything that lives, is far better. And it's actually rewarding. Again, I would recommend the book by Dean Spade because uh, we talked about like working for a charity, for example, can be incredibly rewarding. Well, I would read Dean Spade's book because he talks a lot about the problem of charity versus mutual aid and makes a very clear distinction. Now, being able to make those clear distinctions in charity and mutual aid or in how the state may take advantage of your kindness doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it, right? Now, the other thing I want to point out while we're talking about this is that under the capitalist paradigm, we have alienation. But if the paradigm were to change, then we also can consider that there would be a reconnection of humanity to itself, a reconnection of myself to my productivity. And by productivity, I don't mean it in the capitalist sense, but what I'm doing with my life. Yeah, for example, if I write a poem. You write a poem. Yeah. It's not, you're not writing it because you have this imperative to sell it, yeah. but because you have the pure intention of creating something for yourself or for the world that you want to share with your community for joy, for sadness, for anything, right? Mm -hmm. Dean Spade gives a few examples mm -hmm. of mutual aid. Is there one that you would highlight in particular to explain maybe what mm -hmm. it is precisely? Well, so 
first of all, like Dean Spade is taking the idea of mutual aid from the anarchist theory that Peter Kropotkin put forward of mutual aid being a factor of evolution. Now, in his book, so Dean Spade's book, he specifically looks at the difference between mutual aid as the opposition to charity. Now, would I be able to say, for example, a specific area of the book? Like, what were you thinking in with that question? Well, if there are examples that we could give to... Illustrate the difference? Well, to illustrate more clearly what mutual aid could look like. Ah, okay. So, well, I think that in that case, the, the best thing is to illustrate basically what charity is now, in a way. And there's this really, really interesting example that he gives in his book of, what is it? They, the, the government of Massachusetts gives out $350 to a poor family for child support. And if the poor family has an extra child, they actually reduce how much money oh, yeah, they give. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it goes down by $100 for every child which is basically a way of saying that if you're poor, you're not allowed to have children. Yeah. And I, I think that this also is a great illustration of charity with eugenics baked into it. Yeah, I was going to say, is that even charity or is it eugenics? Well, it, it is. It is well, in, in a lot of ways, like charity can be. It's Charity is conditional to yeah. the capitalist social contract. So mutual aid in opposition with uh, charity would be unconditional, right? Exactly. So, so you just yeah. you're just given something because you need it. It's to cover basic needs. And you you cover basic for everybody needs for everybody unconditionally. So for example, you might say, "Oh, well, that person doesn't need free food." If that person is coming forward and asking for free food, they're even if they are not hungry, or even if they are not poor. If they are coming to this place and asking for free food, then they deserve free food. It's not on us to judge who gets to receive free food, right? All of the billionaires in the world could come to this soup kitchen and get free food, and it wouldn't matter. It would be fine. What we would hope is that they can learn from this unconditional giving and apply it to themselves. But instead, a lot of charities offer billionaires the ability to choose the people that get to live and die. I just want to ask one question about this, though. If we were able to overcome the current paradigm, would we be giving free food to billionaires simply for the reason that, uh, well, oh, let me put this as a question, would billionaires even still exist? No, I was going to say no. <laughs> I was about to stop you halfway through the question. I said, like, billionaires wouldn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> because billionaires become billionaires by taking advantage of other people. Right. So we, don't, we wouldn't be giving free food to billionaires because that is a concept that would be obsolete. Exactly. Yeah. Now, of course, you might say, for example, that... For example, in the current paradigm, that if we gave free food to all the billionaires, then there wouldn't be any left for the people that are deserving of it, You know, the people that are homeless that uh, really need that food. And th that is, of course, that's a problem. That's a problem, but we cannot create, unfortunately, we cannot judge. This is kind of the problem of doing communist or anarchist work 
in the current paradigm is that it is so easily co-opted and we also have to we we sometimes have to figure out how to navigate this without repeating the capitalist paradigm without recreating hierarchy without recreating power over others for our position right Mm. Um, I think there's one important aspect we need to clarify here. I want to sure. get back to what we have been discussing off the record um, earlier. What do we mean by communism? Because we have to be careful or our audience not to conflate communism with certain types of state capitalism, right? Yeah. Um, so, of course, this is a, well, this is a very complex subject. But oftentimes, who gets to make the definition of what communism is? Who gets to write the history? Well, the victor gets to write history. And when the victor uses abusive tactics in order to win, we have a difficulty being able to define ourselves what our movement is. So, for example, if we think about the USSR, the USSR went through a revolution that deposed and got rid of the capitalist powers as much as possible. However, it was from the Second World War really under siege from capitalism, especially American imperialism, which meant that these people had no other choice, these governments had no other choice but to reinstate a form of state capitalism or kind of siege communism, if you will. Now, The thing is that the USSR, even under Lenin, he said, they was asked, are you, are you communist? It's like, no, we aspire to be communist. That's why we call ourselves communists. That uh, is the tradition, uh, not traditional, transitional periods in right. the spiral Marx is talking about, right? The, And then this is where it went wrong. Right. Well, in, in attaining a communist society, so a communist society is a classless, stateless society. Of course, that's a big simplification. But we cannot apply these ideas towards the USSR. We cannot apply these ideas towards the Chinese People's Party or China. But they made moves towards those ideas. Unfortunately, they were put under capitalist siege. The thing is that both Lenin and Marx understood that... A successful communist revolution that would actually allow us to really aim towards communism had to be an international revolution. And the reason for that is that at the moment under capitalism, all of our needs are met through the international trade that we do. So we have been in Europe, for example, we have become incredibly dependent on products from other countries, foods from other countries. You know, you would have a hard time going through your supermarket aisle and finding things that were grown in your local area. So that if capitalism stopped, or if an economic union was separated from this international trade, that your people would starve, right? In, you know, with the war in Ukraine, a lot of the grain was said to go mostly to Europe and Africa. Well, when the war in Ukraine happened, Europe bought up more grain from other places and Africa suffered the most. Yeah. But it shows that basically these connections are hierarchical under the 
capitalist system and are necessary for a successful revolution. So, okay, what is communism? Coming back to that idea, what is communism? It is not what you've been told. Communism is not when the government does stuff. Yeah. Communism isn't just healthcare for everyone. That is what we believe because we we want to or the state and the capitalist apparatus wants us to hate these things and sometimes it also wants us to believe that we've attained communism so that we're will be happy with what we've got you've got healthcare that's good enough your healthcare is conditional on your working okay maybe not so great you know the other the, a couple of months ago i i got a new apartment and in most cases you have to prove that you are working in order to get an apartment you have right. to have what's called a cdi yeah it's a contract basically that says i'm employed you have to have an undetermined contract yeah, yeah. so basically that says that in order to have housing you have to have a contract in order to have a bank account you need to have you right you have this yeah. this uh chicken and egg thing where basically you're in this constant spiral under capitalism anyway Coming back, this actually, uh, I, I want to move away from that and talk back about alienation, how the system completely alienates us, even from our ability to understand alternatives. And that's exactly what removing the current paradigm of capitalist trade would allow us to do. It would allow through concerted effort, of course, because we can't just do vague anti-capitalism. We have to create a system of reconnecting human beings to the, themselves, to their their production, to their community, in order to to create wellness. And speaking of mental wellness, um, so this idea of uh, returning to wellness and human connection. Um, now we talked a little bit about about mutual aid and charity and how easy it is to co-opt these things. We could also talk about how, for example, the police <laughs> is the uh, tool of suppression of the people. It basically, the police serves to protect capital, protect the capitalist. We can also talk about how there's other ways that wellness is co-opted in society. And I think that what we're going to do is we're going to split this into two episodes. And we're going to talk in the second episode about how wellness has been co-opted under capitalism. And it's incredibly interesting topic, but we'll leave that till next time. Stay tuned for part two of this very interesting talk.